as we stand together and read this morning's sermon text. And you can grab your Bible. I hope you have one in turn in the New Testament uh, to the book of Galatians. We are taking a break this morning from our ongoing series through the Bible's second book, the book of Exodus, on this Lord's Day. Before the Christmas holiday, it seems most appropriate to give some space and even a brief meditation on Christ's birth, its glory and greatness. And we're going to do that by looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. If you don't know anything about Galatians, it's been called before the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, freedom for which we're now going to even see in our text. And what I want to do, even though we're going to spend the overwhelming majority of our time and our study in only verses 4 and 5, I want to give it some context by reading verses 1 through 7, and then I'll pray for our time and and we'll begin together. So let us listen now to the great news of freedom that's ours in Jesus Christ. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Our Father, we ask that you would help us by your spirit, according to your tender mercy and covenant promise, to hear the wonderful truth that you want to speak to us today. And by your spirit, we ask that you would help us to listen as a dying people with eagerness and earnestness. That you would help us by your spirit also to respond in faith and repentance. And that you would help me preach as a dying man with courage and clarity that we might see the good news of salvation that's given to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It was on January 20th, 1793, that, quote, an unprecedented meeting took place in England. That meeting happened at the Harvey Lane Chapel in Leicester. A relatively large crowd gathered in the chapel that day. And after a few hours that were set aside for prayer, after several various introductory remarks, a man named Andrew Fuller, who was one of the better-known preachers and pastors in England at the end of the 18th century, he rose to preach a sermon in front of two missionaries soon to leave to take the gospel to a foreign land. And in Andrew Fuller took for his text, John 20, verse 21, which in the old King James says, Peace be unto you, for as the Father hath sent me, so I send you. And so he spoke to these two missionaries on the rules for their missionary endeavor from this text, the directives therein, the challenges that they were going to meet along the way, and they ended by speaking of the reward that they would receive. And when Fuller had given the amen to the meeting, everyone left in silence. And two men named William Carey and John Thomas departed for India. 
igniting what is now known as the modern missionary movement. And I tell you that because we come in our text this morning to another commissioning service. But this is, of course, a commissioning service that stretches all the way back into eternity. This is a commissioning service that involves none other than the triune God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a commissioning service that brought the ignition, didn't it? The spark for salvation as we're going to find Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. And so what you want to know when you come to this point in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5... Uh, You're in a variety of different ways getting dropped into the middle of an argument that Paul has been making, certainly since the beginning of chapter 3. And you can simply summarize that argument as Paul telling the Galatian church that there are only two ways that you can live religiously. So students, there are only two ways that you can live in the world according to Paul at this point in Galatians. You can live under the law or you can live under faith. You can live under the Mosaic covenant or the new covenant. You can live under obedience to the law or, or faith in Jesus Christ. But then even we're getting dropped also into the middle of an argument that's smaller that he's making in the first seven verses of chapter 4. And that's an argument you can summarize by Paul simply is preaching the good news that slaves to sin are now sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so kids, I hope that you know the difference between being a slave to sin and a child of God. A difference between being captive to sin and captivated by Jesus Christ, bound to the law or blessed by the Lord. And if you don't know that radical difference, how such an exchange even can take place, the good news of our passage is it's going to tell you how that happened. And of course, it begins to happen according to our text on that light many centuries ago when a general-like angel burst forth in the night sky and told trembling shepherds, Fear not, for unto you has been born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then an angelic army and choir-like chorus surrounded that general-like angel, and they burst forth singing a great anthem of peace on earth. And if you've been around churches long enough, perhaps been at a missionary commissioning service, or familiar enough with Christian missionary organizations, Surely you know how many people often talk about Jesus' final words in Matthew's gospel at the end of chapter 28 as the Great Commission. Well, our theme this morning is the greatest commission from Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And I want to walk through it basically like a journalist would. It is news, after all, the gospel, good news of salvation. See, first of all, when Christ came. Secondly, how Christ came. And thirdly, why Christ came. When Christ came, notice again verse 4, as it begins, we're told it happened when the fullness of time had come. And by this point in his writing to the churches at Galatia, Paul is very much interested in time. If you just notice a few verses prior in verse 2 of chapter 4, he's talking about time, isn't he? That a child who's an heir is under guardians and managers until the precise date set by his father. And what he's even said in chapter 3 is that the Mosaic Covenant, which is the way he's talking about the law here in technical terms, it was given for a specific time to do something specifically for God's people. And the argument that he's using is from the language of adoption, the language of heirs and inheritance. And perhaps an easier way to think about it in more modern terms would be considering a story like 
something in 1999 when the Duchess and Duke of Northumberland decided with their vast fortune, they didn't want to give it immediately to their 14-year-old son, Earl Percy. So what they decided to do was enact this kind of legal decision where he was going to find that money put in a trust and it was going to be managed by guardians and custodians for the next 11 years. And it was only when he turned 25 years old that he was going to earn the right to that inheritance. And what Paul is saying here in Galatians is just as a father may set a precise date for the child to receive the inheritance. In the same way, our Heavenly Father has set the precise time at which His Son was going to come and bring the inheritance to God's people. For notice verse 24 of chapter 3, that's essentially what He said. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So what He's telling us, kids, is Jesus came simply because it was time for Jesus to come. One of the books that our family loves to read during the Christmas season, or at least I love to read it to the kids, is a book called Song of the Stars. And it talks about how these animals, it depicts quite movingly, at least I think, you know, these animals across the animal kingdom that are marching forward to, to Bethlehem. They want to see heaven's son that's now sleeping under the stars that he made. And as this kind of growing army of animals is marching towards David's city, they each are shouting to each other, it's time, it's time. And in a way, possibly, you may not have recognized before, or maybe you have meditated on it long enough to realize is Jesus came precisely when he did, because it was time for him to come. He was not a millisecond too early. He was not a millisecond too late. Everything had been fashioned to this point to get to this point. Mary and Joseph betrothed. Joseph, belonging to the family of David, finding a son born into his family precisely because it was time. Young teenage girl, Mary found to be with child, although she's a virgin, because it was time. Joseph, resolving when he found that Mary was with child, to divorce his wife quietly because he was a just man, God sent the angel Gabriel to say, No, you must take this child as your own and call his name Jesus, because it was time. Caesar Augustus deciding that he was going to decree a census, a census that would drive Mary and Joseph to the promised city of Bethlehem, all because it was time. While the greatest ruler in the world, Caesar Augustus, was showing everyone how great he was by counting all the people, God, the ruler over all the world, was showing everyone how great he was by becoming one of his people because it was time. Well, time for what? Notice how verse 4 continues. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. I hope you might do this sometimes with Scripture. You just take a, you take a phrase like that, five-word phrase, God sent forth His Son. And you realize if you just slow down enough, you meditate deeply with the Spirit, how you can spend hours on five words, God sent forth His Son. And if you meditated long enough, you might see many things in those simple five words. I certainly hope at least you get to a point where you'll be able to see that it is, in my mind at least, certainly an illusion, a direct statement about the preexistence of Jesus Christ. He didn't come into existence when He was born in Bethlehem. He already was, so God sent forth His Son. I think it's 
uh, subtle way that Paul is underscoring Christ's divinity. And certainly in a not-so-subtle way, as the text continues, into how Christ came, he's going to underscore Christ's humanity. For notice what we're told as verse 4 continues. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. It's one of the more interesting and unique things about Christianity is that it's altogether different from the world religions in how world religions tend to begin from the top down. They start with the view up there and how you can get up there. But the gospel of Christianity begins from the bottom up. It's less about how you can get up there than the God who came down here. And the 16th century, one of the most influential works in certainly the Protestant Reformation traditions was a book written by a German monk named Martin Luther. And this book was titled essentially Lectures to Galatians. And when you couple his lectures with or to the Galatians and his lectures about the, Paul's letter to the Romans, you get what really is the kind of trumpet-like triumphant cry of justification by faith alone. And in and Luther's lectures on Galatians, he of course eventually gets to the truth that Jesus was born from a woman. And here's what he says about this great gospel truth. Christianity does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. Therefore, you must run directly to the manger and the woman's womb. Embrace this infant and the virgin's child in your arms and look at him. And I hope that you can sit in here today and say with a clean conscience and fullness of faith, yes, I have looked at this Savior with the eyes of faith, a Savior who was born of woman. But not just that, it's underscoring, isn't it, also how He came as the text continues. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. So the law here, again, is technically speaking about this kind of mosaic economy of the Old Covenant. The mosaic covenant and the law's regulations of do this that you may live. And Jesus had to be born under the law's conditions in order that He might satisfy, according to Galatians chapter 3, the law's curse. He had to be born under the law's conditions. Therefore, He might perfectly obey the law and be able to give righteousness to sinners like you and me, a righteousness that we receive by faith alone. And kids, if you wanted to get an idea of what it was like to live under the law, to be born under the law, just to skip back up to chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, now, before faith came, so of course, before Jesus Christ was born, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In a spiritual sense, Jesus was born in the prison cell of the law. Jesus came to bring that great salvation jailbreak to sinners like you and me, held captive to the chains and the bounds of law and its power, even its mastery, its tyranny, of which we'll speak about more in a minute. But how did he bring about that great jailbreak? That's really what Paul seems to want to say here in verse 5, isn't it? This is when he came. And how he came, but now the text is going to emphasize in verse 5 why Jesus came. And you'll see there's two reasons. Look at how verse 5 begins. God sent forth his Son to redeem those who were under the law. So here, the first purpose of Jesus' coming was for redemption. He might set slaves free. I wonder if you might be able to guess who the most photographed person in the 19th century was. Perhaps your mind might race Abraham Lincoln or Ulysses S. Grant. 
But the most photographed man in the 19th century was a slave-turned-abolitionist named Frederick Douglass. And if you know anything about Frederick Douglass' story, because of how he was raised in slavery, he didn't know his birthday. And kids, imagine that, growing up, not being sure when you were actually born. And so later in life, he celebrated September 3rd as his birthday, because that was the day in which he was freed from slavery. And I hope you can sit in here today and think back on a time in that spiritual sense of a birthday when you were set free from slavery to sin, slavery to the law. Because being born under the law is a terrible thing, according to Galatians. You could go home later on today and just read through chapter 3. You know, it'll take you a few minutes. And students, you could circle every time that preposition under shows up. And it's speaking about the state in which we were all born as, as sinners, that we're born not just under the law, that means we're born under sin, that means we're born under a curse, we're born under a custodian, we're born under the elemental spirits and powers of this world. And Jesus comes born under the law that he might set people free by redeeming them from the curse of the law. And don't ever forget how he did that. Galatians 3 tells us quite clearly he became a curse for us when he was nailed to the tree at Calvary. And it was there at the cursed cross of Calvary that he nails the law's curse to a cursed tree. And he drowns the law's curse in his own blood so that you might be cleansed, forgiven, freed. Purpose number one, adoption. Purpose number, I'm sorry, purpose number one, redemption. Purpose number two, Adoption, why Christ came, you see as verse 5 continues, God sent forth His Son not just to redeem those who are under the law, but also so that we might receive adoption as sons. Slaves to sin can become children of God. Slaves to the law can become part of God's faith family. Students, I wonder which describes you best. A slave to sin, or a son or daughter of God. I have quite a close friend that's ministered now for almost 15 years doing foster care and adoption ministry. and He and his family very much uh, practice what they preach, having adopted a, a, a veritable gaggle of children. And some of them have been adopted quite young. That They'll never know a time when they weren't in that house. Some of them have actually been adopted quite old, that they only live in the house for a few months before they're old enough to kind of move on and be independent on their own. But as I've watched all of these adoptions throughout the years, you don't have to be the most observant observer to recognize how obvious it is. Those children, the minute that adoption happens, they realize everything has changed. They have a new family. They have a new identity. They're subject to a new authority. They're bound to new responsibilities. They've been given a a new security. And Paul is saying here the exact same thing happens for sinners like you and me, spiritually speaking. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we who were once slaves to sin can now be sons and daughters of God. And what do we get but a, a new family? A new identity. We now respond to a new authority and His new responsibilities given to us and the new security that He's granted to us in Jesus Christ. Jerry Packer, a name that some of you would know, he died, of course, not too long ago. And he famously said in one of his books, he called adoption the highest of all the gospel privileges. And I'm not so sure that I would ever want to order the benefits and blessings of Jesus Christ. But surely you know what he means. There's something uniquely precious about adoption. 
You know, kids, if you want to just take Paul's argument at this point in Galatians, he's been emphasizing three particular words that are often long theological words we use, but, but understand the difference of what he's been emphasizing. So he's talked about justification. That means God makes us right. We're, we're made right before God, the judge. Well, redemption that we just mentioned is how we're freed by God, the Savior. Well, adoption here is that we are loved by God, the Father. It's the great news, isn't it, that no matter your suffering or sorrow, your hurt or hardship, affliction or adversity, your trials or temptations, your weakness or your wandering, through faith in Jesus Christ, God speaks to you in the midst of your circumstance and says, you are my beloved child. Where the law only condemns. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ because he's already done what the law required is now he only comforts his brothers and sisters in his father's family. This is, isn't it, the greatest commission. When did Jesus come? In the fullness of time. How did he come? Born of a virgin under the law. Why did he come? To redeem and bring adoption to his people. I grew up in a family that loved detective stories, and so I'm educating and catechizing my children in detective stories as they get older. And for better or worse, I started with the Hardy Boys series. And sometime last year, I started to graduate my older children into that greatest detective of literary fiction, Sherlock Holmes. And my oldest son in particular has really enjoyed Sherlock Holmes, and it's just kind of been a joy to kind of talk through my old memories of Sherlock Holmes with him. And uh, one memory that I... I have probably most dear in certain ways is an early short story where Watson and Holmes are just getting ready to figure each other out. And, and as Watson has just entered in Holmes' room, Holmes says, hey, Watson, you, you've come up those stairs a number of times from the hallway to my room, haven't you? And, and Watson says, well, yes, uh, frequently. Well, how frequently? Oh, I suppose hundreds of times. And he says, so you know then how many steps there are on the stairs, don't you? And Watson pauses and thinks for a minute and says, well, I actually don't. And Holmes, it's a teaching point he's trying to make. He says, precisely so. You've seen, but you haven't observed. My dear Watson, I have seen and observed, and I know therefore there are 17 steps. Then the stairs leading from the hallway to the room. And it's true that many of you I know in here today, you have grown up in Christian environments dozens and dozens, perhaps even hundreds and hundreds of times you've come to meditate on the glory and greatness of a Savior that was born of a woman under the law. And perhaps you know as well as I do, in spite of dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds and hundreds of times, you have only seen, but not truly observed, what happened on that night so long ago. When the Savior was born. So what I want to do as we begin to close is help you to see and observe the glory and greatness of a Savior born in Bethlehem according to our passage. So three simple wonders I want you to notice in our text. Number one, the incarnation displays the Father's sovereignty. The incarnation displays the Father's sovereignty. It happened precisely when God said it would happen. He says, doesn't he, through the wise teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that he's made everything appropriate in its time. Why did the nations have to wait for centuries? Because God said it wasn't time yet. Why did they have to long for thousands of years? 
God said it wasn't time yet. Are we not likewise waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ? Hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands of years even at this point. Why? The fullness of time hasn't arrived yet. But the great comfort isn't of God's sovereignty, of the Father's sovereign rule over His people's lives. What our text is telling us is that He holds every person, every event, every moment in His hands. And He brings everything according to pass, as He said He would. Perhaps it's a striking thing for you to meditate on that reality in the pandemic and the situation we found ourselves in the turmoil of 2020. Every single thing, exactly as he said it would happen. When it would happen, doing what he decreed it would. And the reason that's a comfort for God's people is because he takes every single person, every single event, and every single moment and says, I'm going to use it for the good of my people. I'm going to use it for the saving purposes of my people. Incarnation number one displays the Father's sovereignty. Number two, incarnation shows the Son's humility. I hope you've had an opportunity to meditate on the mystery and the majesty that is a Savior born of a virgin under the law. It's an incredible wonder when you just think long enough about it. The infinite one became an infant baby. What we know, of course, also in Bethlehem is that the Lord who binds the stars and the galaxies, he's now bound with peasant clothes. He who spoke the universe into existence with a simple word, he now babbles as a baby. Of course, he who sustains also the entire universe by his word now needs the sustenance of his mother's milk. He whose feet ruled from heaven, all of earth as though earth was its footstool, now were his feet but in an animal trough. Such is the humility of Jesus Christ. Humility necessary that He might save people like you. There's not only majesty in Bethlehem, there's humility in that manger seat. But it's a Trinitarian affair. The involvement of salvation isn't it? according to Galatians chapter 4. It's not just the Father's sovereignty and Son's humility. If we just stretch a bit into verse 6, we see the Spirit's Guarantee. Notice what we're told. And because you are His sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the greatest commission isn't just about the sending of the Son. The greatest commission includes the sending of the Son's Spirit into the hearts of God's people that they might know, that you might know, that you're one of God's children. As I understand the logic of the gospel, how? How might you know that you are a child of God? Perhaps you've asked that question recently. How might I know that I truly belong to the Lord and have been welcomed into His family? One reason over and over the gospel writers, the apostolic authors paint for us is that He has given His Spirit to you, placed His Spirit in your heart, a Spirit who's the guarantee, the seal, the authentication and confirmation of God's adoption of you into His family. And few things, isn't it true, Show the reality, the awareness, the love and affection for God's Spirit, as this verse tells us, as we confidently and boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer. And what we say is not infinite creator and redeemer who holds all authority. Heaven and earth bow before you, which is true. But we get to say, Father, my Father, would you listen to me? The Father's sovereignty. 
the Son's humility, the Spirit's guarantee, all wrapped up on that long, silent night so many centuries ago. My four-year-old daughter, Sarah, she's certainly in that age still. We're running out of these days, so you have to appreciate them. Or anytime she tends to see me because I'm gone so often, she just races for Daddy. And so after an evening service a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was walking down and the service was over. She's racing down the middle aisle, Daddy! And I picked her up and she's glancing over my shoulder and she says, Daddy, can I go hold the baby? And I was thinking, oh. Because over my shoulder, what she was looking at is just a little infant girl. Happens to be in our small group, Sarah knows a little bit. And so the mother was, was kind enough to say, yeah, come over here, you can hold the baby. You know, the Lord's kind enough. Come here, you can hold my son. I've sent him for your redemption and adoption. I sent him to be born of a woman born under the law. I sent him at just the right moment that you might hold him with arms of faith and love. And I hope you do that today and even the coming weeks, that it will be the treasure of trust in your arms. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your mercy, your grace, your unending love towards sinners like us. We who, like lost sheep, have gone astray. You have brought near into your family, so near that you have even seated us at your table that you might dine with us. Lord, we want to know your son more. We want to love him more. We want to trust him more. So may that very spirit that you have poured out into our hearts do just that. As we want to keep up constant communion with you, always crying, Abba, Father. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us now stand together as we want to respond to the good news of salvation. It came through the coming of our Savior, singing hymn number 194, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.